Well, welcome to this gathering at Restoration Covenant Church. I'm so glad you're here. My name's Rob Jacobson. I'm the lead pastor, and happy Easter. He's risen. Oh, oh yeah, that was a week ago, right? Just seven days ago? Uh, that's kind of how my week was. I don't know about yours, but if I was super honest, um, you know, we talked about living in this supernatural element of the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that he has risen from the dead changes everything. And I don't, like I said, I don't know about you, but yesterday I was sitting in some quiet time with God and I was just thinking, I cannot believe that Easter was six days ago. It seems like light years away from where I was yesterday. And it wasn't a bad week. Uh, It was a little busy, but, you know, I think our lives are always a little busy. And so I, I just started to wonder, how many of us really feel like that? a week after Easter? Is this, is this one unique experience, or do we live so much of our lives in these places where we, we say that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything, but then just a few days later, we forget everything. We forget that, that God's supernatural plans for eternity actually mean that our life is different today in this moment, in this week, in this year. See, some of us, I think, say, well, I believe in Jesus, and I know Easter changes everything, but I don't feel any different. You know, it it's just seemed awkward to say he has risen this week. Uh, not only do I not feel different, um, people don't really treat me different. Not only do they not treat me different, but... But if I was super honest, I, I keep thinking about all the obligations I, I need to do, all the things that I need to do, and I, it's hard for me to really understand that God has changed my life. I don't feel changed. I feel stuck. So if, if you are in a place where you're feeling stuck, let me give you some hope. Well, first some reality that every, every follower of Christ has gotten stuck at one point or another. Their faith has has stalled out or their faith has gone into, just feels like a ditch uh, or it feels like your your wheels are spinning and if you've had that experience or you're in that experience, then welcome to Christianity. Everyone has had that experience. And and there are moments and there are places in the Bible where it says that that we can get unstuck from these places where, where God um, appears, where Jesus is is it comes after the resurrection and he walks on the road with these two men and, and they're talking about the events of the day and they don't even realize it's Jesus and he's right there appearing to them, trying to help them get unstuck from the place that they're at. And so there's hope that comes, but we've got to see the elements. We've got to see the signs. And that's what this series about elements is all about. It's about seeing these places in our life, these conditions in our life that God brings to get us unstuck from that place and really get us in this realm of transformation where God's resurrection power is available to us every day and every moment of every day. And so that's why I'm really excited about this. Now, it comes in a crazy place. It comes um, in the prophetic messages from God to the first restoration community. There was one. Maybe you didn't know that. Um, In this little tiny book called Haggai. So... 
you know, it's about halfway back. It's almost to the New Testament. But Haggai seems like this anemic character. It's a really short, it's a really short book. And it's in a time where God's people have been in exile, and it's the first wave of people returning to Jerusalem, hence Restoration Community. And their city's in ruins. And we look at it and we go, you know, I don't know if I can go that far back. That seems like ancient history. And, and my fear is if we start there, that's what we'll think, is ancient history can't relate to me today. So if that's where you're at, well, let's not go super ancient. Let's go just a little ancient. Maybe World War II and Poland will be a better place to start. See, I was, I was studying some geography, and maybe you didn't know this, but Poland is right in between, in the 1940s, is right in between Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia, or USSR. And, and this place is just a complete war zone. It is torn between these two fractions of, of kind of the same world power idea. And, and there's this movie that comes out a few years ago called The Way Back. And it's about this story of this Polish prisoner of war who is alleged to be a spy. And so the Soviet um, intelligence agents, they are, in, they are just ramming this guy, trying to get him to confess to being a spy, and he won't do it. And so they take his wife in, and they capture his wife, and they're both young. And they force her to tell them that he's a spy. And then they sentence him to 20 years in a Russian work camp in Siberia, where there's no fences, because no one will ever escape Siberia, except he and six other men run away in a blizzard, survive the blizzard, and walk 4,000 miles. They, they start to go to Mongolia, f- realize that that's communist-occupied, they keep going down to India, and they eventually, 4,000 miles later, he ends up in freedom. But Poland is still occupied by communists. So he gets his freedom, only to have to wait 50 years before he can return home. Can you imagine? It's a beautiful picture at the end of the movie where he's almost in a daydream, walking back into his house, meeting up with his wife, who didn't want to confess this, and all he wants to do is say that he forgives her. And, and in this moment, it just made me think about the fact that, that Jerusalem 2,500 years ago and Poland 50 to 70 years ago have so much in common. There are world powers that, that are running across these borders where people are, are giving no credence to the land and really throwing off the people, uh, beating up the people, killing the people, and, and they're there are just these moments of exile. Lifetimes of exile. Try to picture yourself coming home if you're the prisoner of war. 50 years later, do you have a home? Or what's left of it? Do you have any friends? What would you do first? Who would you see first? You know, don't just think it's uh, a sermon tactic. I mean, really think about the things. And there's a spot on your worship folder. It's in the back that you can write it down. You can write down the things that you might do. Because I think it gives us a little bit, it gives us a little bit of an understanding of what this first restoration community in Jerusalem would have been thinking and would have been doing. 
See, God calls these people back. They've been in, they were exiled in uh, 586, 587, right around there. Daniel was exiled in 605, if you know any of those people. And if you don't, it's okay. So this evil King Nebuchadnezzar, who's the world power of the time in Babylon, exports all these people, literally, and, and scatters them amongst Babylon. And several kings later, King Darius, it says at the, fr- at the first part of Haggai here, King Darius is, is the new king of Persia, and Persia has conquered Babylon, and this king decides to let the people go. He's going to let the, the Jews resettle their capital city and their homeland. And 50,000 Jews come back to the land, and God wants them to rebuild the temple. God wants them to rebuild their city. And so they do. Jerusalem, uh, Zerubbabel is the governor, and Joshua is the high priest, and Haggai is probably already there, or maybe he comes back with them and the name just gets missed in the return. You can read about it in Ezra if you want to. But as these people come back, they lay the foundations for the, f- for the temple, they, they, build the, they build the altar, and they sacrifice to God, they sing praises to God, they celebrate one of the greatest festivals of their nation, and then the surrounding communities tell them, oh, stop it. And they work some corporate and um, political red tape. And all of a sudden, the, the construction or reconstruction of the temple ceases. And now 16 years go by. And these surrounding, cu- these surrounding countries are not um, putting up the red tape anymore. It's just the people. They've grown a little apathetic to rebuilding the temple. Because they've got the altar, they can still offer the sacrifices. They can do kind of part of their religious activity, but, but they just have been working on other things. The first restoration community got stuck. And Haggai is called by God to bring them a message to get them unstuck. So we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 2, if you want to follow along. And I think, like God's word often does, that even though it was 2,500 years ago, it is exactly for us today, too. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, or maybe your translation says, the God who rules over all says. You know, these people say, the time has not come to rebuild God's temple. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in paneled homes while the Lord's home remains in ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Twice here in the scripture, the word of the Lord says that God wants these people to think carefully about how they're living. Because the community has come back and, and they started the temple, but then they got sidetracked. And then they started working on their own homes. And so now they're saying, no, 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 you know, the time hasn't come to rebuild the Lord's house. We've got to work on our own homes. They're living well. There has been a drought in the land, but, but they seem to have enough food to eat, and they see, 
they seem to have enough wine to drink, they seem to have enough clothes to wear, and they seem to have enough money to spend if he's going to say something like, you have money and it falls out of your pocket. What I think the, the prophet is trying to say is that none of what you're doing is really fulfilling you. Think carefully about how you're living. Because the reality is, they were more concerned with their personal comfort than pleasing God. The reality is that they were saying to themselves what some of us say, do not do today what you can put off till tomorrow. The time hasn't come for us to rebuild God's house. Yes, it's been, you know, 16 years, but, but procrastination is for the best of us tomorrow, right? We'll do it tomorrow. And they had some misplaced priorities. They were putting their house before God's house. And so he says, don't just think carefully about how you're living, but he challenges them to take a look at what they're getting by how they're living. Now I want you to think about that. Not just think carefully about how you're living, but to take a look at what you're getting by how you're living. He says to them in the next verses, Go up to the mountains, bring down the timber, and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. You expected much, but see, it only turned out to be a little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because my house, which remains in ruin, because of my house. Why? Because of my house. It remains in ruin while you're running around busy with your own house. Therefore, because the heavens have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its crops, because you haven't, you haven't put a priority on rebuilding God's house. So God says, I called for a drought on the fields and on the mountains and on the grain and the new wine and the olive and everything else the ground produces and on people and on livestock and on labor and all the labor of your hands. God is saying that that there are natural consequences to supernatural decisions. When we decide to put our priorities over God's priorities, God has this way of working so it feels almost cursed. Sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively. Where, where we work on these things, but we're really not fulfilled. And he says, I, I want to I be number one priority. Go up into the mountains, bring down the timber, build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. See, see, the temple wasn't just this showcase. It wasn't just about this religious ceremony. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, the temple in the land signified how powerful your God was. And their temple was a foundation. It was flat. It was just a floor. And that's what they were saying about who their God was. That's how they were telling the other nations around them. Now, we don't practice this today, but, but at that time, this was the major, major sign to say, this is our God, this is who he is. He's flat, he's the floor. Not only that, but the temple was a place where the people could come and they could meet with God. And so they are not allowing others to access God, to discover who this God is. This is not about religion or a building. 
It is about a relationship with the creator of the universe. The God who rules over all. Rules over all. Now Jesus comes and says that he is the temple and that it can be destroyed. He will rebuild it in three days. He will give us his spirit, which makes us his temple. Which means that we are now signposts, guideposts, and entrance places for people to come to know who God is. When we say that that we need to make God our top priority. We're not talking about rebuilding a temple like Haggai was talking about rebuilding a temple. But we are talking about inspecting our priorities. So before we go there, because I know some of you have already gone there and wonder where I'm going with it, I want you to think back to what we've talked about with Poland. If you had to wait 50 years to come back to your home and come back to your homeland, what you'd be working on. Who you'd want to see. What you'd be focused on. I know I'd rebuild my house. I know I'd look for my relatives. I know it would be very, very hard for me to not spend time on my pursuits. And these would probably be good pursuits. But it's not what God asked the people to do. And if you're at a place where you feel stuck with God, have you inspected your priorities? Not just your intentions, but your actions and the results. Because maybe you know him a little. Maybe you know God a lot. If you thought about what you've done spiritually, you've prayed for forgiveness, You've prayed for God to bless you. You've asked God to keep you safe. You've prayed for your family if you have one. In fact, you have lots of prayers for people and lots of prayers for yourself. They're often the same kinds of prayers. They're often repeat prayers, but, but they're prayers nonetheless. Maybe you volunteer in the community. and Maybe you volunteer at church. And, and maybe you wonder if you're a parent, what kind of parent you're being or how you can be a better parent. If you're not a parent, you're wondering how you can be a good friend. You're, you're asking for God to, to bless you at work, to work hard in your job. And yet you always have this sneaking suspicion that someone's going to steal this. Or someone's going to come and take it away. Or, or somehow this feeling of being close with God is going to just fly away. And you're going you're to wonder what happened. Because you don't want to be stuck like you've been stuck. Well... Think about your soul. In the midst of that, those feelings and those thoughts and those actions, is there any compromise or conflict in your soul? Is there a feeling, feeling of, um, of overwhelmment, maybe? As I thought about this idea of you know, misplaced priorities and procrastinating personal comfort and this idea that God wants to be number one, the first thing that came to my mind is, oh, I, I, I know, I'll, I'll just do more. I'll just do more. Like, I'll pray more. I know, I'll read my Bible more. Because, you know, I, I've, read, I've read a lot of statistics, and they've done surveys, and, and Christians get stuck all the time. And do you know, Christians in America, the number one way they can re-engage after getting stuck is, is personal spiritual practices. So, you know, I'll read my Bible more. I'll pray more. I'll, I'll, I'll give more. I'll serve more. I'll try and find more ways to, to be around my friends that inf- encourage me and, and, and be around my, 
um, my my kids for me and 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 do yeah and I end up a little exhausted. And if you went to this place of more, first of all, you're probably not alone. Second of all, though, if you do it, you're probably going to end up exhausted or frustrated or feel like you're failing. Because when we go to more, our first thought is, I'll just add a couple sections to my life. And already, the problem with more is that we're thinking in compartments. We're thinking that our life is a little, a little file box. I was reorganizing tools and Legos. I'm an adult and a child at the same time. And so I wanted to have boxes so I could find my metric sets and my, my hex wrenches, and I wanted to have little compartments so I could find the right Lego when the kid is crying about which Lego to have, and I could go, whoo, look, I'm right here. And so the problem with these boxes, the nice thing is it feels all organized. The problem is it's all separated. And so we add to our work life, and, and we realize that we're, oh, we're adding to our family life, and then we're adding to our friend life, and then we're adding to our health life. And all of a sudden, if we really thought about all the things we wanted to do in a day, we'd need 27 or 28 or 37 or 38 hours in a day. So the, the answer is an add more. And Jesus confirms this. He says, you know, yep, procrastinating can get you stuck. If you're putting stuff off, you're just going to delay stress. In fact, you're going to increase stress. There's always going to be something to do. There's always going to be something that's pretty important. And one day we're going to wake up and have missed a bunch of life because we've procrastinated a lot of it away. And, and there are moments of personal comfort because it's easy to think about what we want. It's easy to think about what we're wearing because we can feel it. We can touch it. It's easy to think about what we're eating and what we're drinking. But maybe that's not what God wants for us. Now, God wants us to enjoy life. I'm not saying that. But in those margin moments of our day or our week, what are we thinking about? That's what the prophet is trying to get these people to say. And that's what I think God is trying to say to us. In the margin moments of our life, what are we thinking about? Are we thinking about God, God's love, God's priorities? Are we thinking about things that are our priorities or what we love? God desperately wants relationship with us. And as we're in relationship with him, he wants us to share that relationship with others. It is the only relationship that will transform us. The supernatural element of Jesus' resurrection is the only thing that can, can bring the true transformation to our life. And it is the primary element that changes us. But there's this other element that changes us. And Haggai gets right to it. He says, set in your mind. Make a priority to honor and please God. Go up on the mountains Cut down the trees, bring them down, build the temple. There's a specific plan that's in place that he's saying, think about these things. Set in your mind, is God going to be first? And then let everything else be rearranged after that. 
Don't just go by your intentions, but really go by the actions and the results of those actions. Be courageous enough to have honest conversations with God about how you're living, about how I'm living. And then make that plan to put those steps together. And for Haggai and the people that God had said 16, 17 years before this, rebuild the temple, it was go up to the hill country, cut down the tree, bring the timbers down, rebuild the temple. Now, Christianity, this is, uh, this, is this guy named G.K. Chesterton. He says that Christianity has been tried. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. It's not like it was rocket science to rebuild the temple. He had given them the plans. It's just that it was a lot of work. And to do this work, they couldn't just add more to their life. They had to rearrange their life. So, if the good news is, this element is not decide to put God first, and then do a bunch of activities to help us feel good about loving God or that God loves us. That's not it. This element is really decide to churn from your selfish ways and love God and love what God loves. People. I mean, Haggai, I think, was a little bit kinder about it. But as he talks about procrastination and as he talks about personal comfort and as he talks about misplaced priorities, they all stem from this same desire that the people had. I love something or someone else more than I love what God loves. So think about your last month. If that's too hard, just think about your last week. And think about what were your driving passions in the week? And what was behind those? What were you trying to achieve? Think about what motivates you each day. Like those margin moments of our life, what we're thinking about. Think about what holds your interests during the day. Think about what you almost always make space for. And you'll start to get a sense of what you love. And God is not sitting there hold, crossing his arms and shaking his finger. Jesus, Jesus comes to us and says, if any of you want to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. That's how he starts. Because we can't just add. We've got to reprioritize. And he just asks us to honestly look at him and reprioritize. And if none of your passions or none of my passions or motivations or interests have anything to do with God, then no wonder I feel stuck. But he's saying the element is decide. Decide to set God first. Let everything else fall into place. So go up on the mountain bring down the timber, build my house, and I'll take pleasure in it. I'll be honored in it. People will see your love for me. They will sh see you sharing your love for me. 
It won't be adding because everything fits together anyway. Spiritual decisions have natural consequences, both towards God and away from God. What do I need to turn from that's too focused on me and not really focused on God? That's what I think the prophet is saying. That's what I think it's still, he's still saying to us. That's what Jesus was saying when he said, if any of you want to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. I'm not going to tell you what's selfish for you because I'm not the prophet. And I'm certainly not Jesus. But if you sit with him, my guess is he'll tell you because he loves you. He doesn't want things to be between you. He wants to be close. In fact, that's the message. When the people decided that that they wanted to respond and they wanted to obey God, that this message that wasn't from Haggai, that was really from God, they said, okay, we will do this. And he started with the leaders, the governor and the priests, and the whole remnant of God's people, this restoration community, the 50,000 people that ended up back in Jerusalem, the whole remnant said, yes, we will do this. And Haggai says, in God's response, this is what God says to you, the Lord is with you. He's not standing over you waiting for you to make all the steps. He's just waiting for you to decide. And he's right there. He is with you. And it says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoiadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of God's people. And they began to carry out this work. Stirred up the hearts is a... Is a uh, Ancient way of saying, he sparked the enthusiasm of the people. He lit a fire under them. Their, their spirit was changed. They were, they were launched forward because God was with them, because that's what God wanted all along, just to be close to them. See, this is possible. Even if you feel like you've been stuck for five years, or you've been stuck for 10 years, or you've been stuck for 15 years, this is possible, very possible. And because God is with us, and because God transforms the hearts anyway, it's God who will work in us. We just have to set our minds to it and let him work in us. We have to have the courage to say, okay, I'm going to inspect my priorities. Like, not my intentions, but my actions. I got to have the courage to do that. I got to have the courage to say that pleasing God is going to come above my personal comfort. I've got to have the courage to say, God, I trust you with my whole life, not just believe in you, not just believe in you for when I die, but my whole life today. I've got to have the courage to believe that God's love is real and God's love is readily available for me. That's not selfish. That's just believing that God is love, that he is who he says he is. And I've got to have the courage to invite God into what I'm already doing. It's not about adding. It's about reprioritizing. Inviting God into what you and I are already doing. And see, I think not only is this possible, I think that, that when you hear about someone that does this, that it stirs our own hearts. Think about someone who lives in this way, who's decided to make God their number one priority. This person would think of God as a close personal friend. He would relate to God as father and friend. 
when you ask this person about their faith, she will start talking about someone that she's absolutely crazy about. When he describes a conversation that he has with God, it will be like they went out for lunch, this person and, and God, and, and talk back and forth across the table. She might wake up and end her day with prayer, a conversation with God. He might silently pray to God in, during meetings at work or even, even in traffic. She would stop and listen in those quiet, still moments for the voice of God. Not this far-off spiritual figure, but a divine friend who's close, who says he loves. She would go through her day saying, I belong to Jesus. What do you have for me today, God? How can I know you more? How can I share your love with others? This is the person that says, God, I belong to you. I've set my heart on pleasing you and loving you. And I'm, I'm yours. And all of a sudden, all the added frustrations or all the added confusion or all the added conflict starts to get less and less and less. Because we stopped adding set our minds on God. That's what, he, that's what he wants for us. But we've got to turn from our selfish ways. And we'll still be ourselves. We'll just not be confused. We'll not feel compromised. We'll not feel exhausted. We'll not feel empty. We'll just feel full of God's love, full of God's commitment to us and our commitment to him. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this old, ancient, tiny little book that's sandwiched in between these world powers and, and a people that strayed far from you, God, but you never left them. Even when you were silent for 400 years, you never left them. You never forgot about them. And God, you sent your son to live, to teach, to die, and to rise again for us. And God, you, you say, if any of us want to be your follower, we must turn from your selfish ways. And so, God, we, we just stop and we, we put that decision in front of us and say, who and what do I want to live for? And you've, you've lived and died for me, Jesus. Can I belong to you and be yours? So, God, would you teach us what we need? Holy Spirit, would you show us uh, if we need conviction, if we need encouragement, if we need reassurance, God, that you never stop reaching out to us, but you want us to experience full life in you. Help us to do that in your name. Amen.